Okay, welcome back to Pride and Prejudice, a podcast for serious Jane Austen lovers to discuss our love for Jane Austen uh, away from the haters and perhaps convert some haters in the process. Um, my name is Kristen, and this is episode two of the podcast. In episode one, I presented my thesis that the most famous hero of English literature actually suffers from social anxiety, and that is the root of all his so-called pride. And joining me today is my dear friend, Margaret, who is going to give us also a recap of what was discussed in episode one. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me again, Kristen. Uh, in our first episode, we looked at the 1995 BBC and A&E miniseries, and we looked at certain clips and of Mr. Darcy's interactions with Lizzie and other characters for examples of his social anxiety. Uh, Kristen also drew from her own experience with the condition to flesh out her thoughts and I responded in ridiculous jokes. <laughs> and it was a good time was had by a all. A good time was had by all. And I know the public was crying out for yeah. a second episode. Yeah, so. my mom listened to it, and she said she was desperately wanting another episode. So, so. that's why we're here for you, proof. gentle listeners. Proof that Kristen's mom. Best podcast ever recorded, because <laughs> my mom loved it. There you go. Why don't we get back to the content? All right, <laughs> back to content. So... Last time, we took the story all the way up to the first dramatic proposal, where Darcy proclaims his love for Elizabeth and also says that he hates how poor her family is and how inappropriate they are, and he gets brutally rebuffed. It was so romantic. I know. It's very, very, you know, as we were saying, actually pretty unromantic. And so now, Darcy, having been um, denied the love of his life, is going to fall into kind of a, a funk. We don't see it that much in the movie, though. We see little clips of him. One time we see him uh, all angsty, working out his fencing lesson, mm. right? Oh, 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 he right? will conquer this. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I will conquer this. Thrust, thrust, parry. <laughs> a hit acknowledged. Very good <laughs> yeah, and um, you, we learn from that short scene that he's having a lot of trouble processing the fact that she doesn't love him and the fact that his manners may not have been what they should be. And that means for him that it's if he wants to redeem himself, he has to change his ways. And today I want to talk about one of the things that makes it hard for Darcy to socialize like a normal person. And that thing is his deep underlying commitment to honesty in all things. So you'll remember uh, the last time we heard from Darcy, he was being mad at Elizabeth, and um, she had rejected him. She said, I don't want to marry you. And then he said this. And this is your opinion of me. My faults by this calculation are heavy indeed. But perhaps these offenses might have been overlooked had not your pride been hurt by the honest confession of the scruples which had long prevented my forming any serious design on you. Had I concealed my struggles and flattered you. But disguise of every sort is my abhorrence. There it is. Disguise of every sort is my abhorrence. Um, abhorrence being the noun of the verb to abhor. Oh, look at you. <laughs> I didn't know we were also getting a grammar lesson. I think it's important to point that out because not everybody may be familiar 
with that SAT word abhor that uh, Darcy actually uses twice in this. He's always abhorring things. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, yes, yes. So he has a deep underlying commitment to honesty, and you can see that throughout the movie. It, this statement actually throws his other behavior earlier in the movie into make, makes it easier to understand. Um, and I'll show you what I mean by that. Oh, sorry. I have a, a question for you about that, Kristen. Do you think that sometimes people can use, well, I was just being honest as an excuse for sometimes being a jerk? Yes, and I have a total clip of him doing that. And um, I just want to point out that I didn't know that was coming. No, she doesn't know anything about what I'm going to say. And Darcy, as we said before, he um, he is surrounded by people who are insincere. He's always the richest guy in the room. Everybody, the whole, entire movie is just people kissing up to him and his aunt and trying to get their good favor and hopefully benefit from their money. And we start to see, when we look back on his behavior that he has developed a shell and he has used honesty as a weapon, um, but for good reason. And so I, I'd like to take you back to that party at Sir William Lucas's in the beginning. You may remember that right after, um, what happened at the party was he tried to dance with Elizabeth and she rejected him. And then Miss Bingley, who's a character I don't think we've talked about, um, Mr. Bingley's sister, Miss Bingley, who, who lives with them, is obviously jockeying Darcy. Like, she wants to marry him so bad because he's so rich. So when she sees all this go down, he knows, you know, how probably um, disgusted he is with these poor people. Poor people, she says. I believe I can guess your thoughts at this moment. I should imagine not. You are thinking how insupportable it would be to spend many evenings in such tedious company. No, indeed, my mind was more agreeably engaged. I've been meditating on the very great pleasure which a pair of fine eyes and the face of a pretty woman can bestow. And may one dare ask, whose are the eyes that inspired these reflections? Miss Elizabeth Bennet's. <laughs> I am all astonishment. Right, so you can hear how hurt she is. You can hear that in her little laugh, like she wants him and he's basically just rebuffed her in the most obviously possible. I always wondered why he would do that, because for the rest of the movie, she just makes fun of, she teases him constantly about this fine eyes comment. But what's actually going on, I think, is he's using, as you said, his honesty in a weapon in this case. And that's why he has developed this, this, this honesty in a way. This unwillingness to play anybody else's conversational game. One of the things that this does to him is it makes him really bad at having a conversation. Um, and a good example of this is, I don't know if you remember, well, of course you remember. Um, this, this next episode I'm going to talk about is also one of Austin's many socializing 101 lessons for the socially awkward. All right, what I'm going to play is Darcy failing at a conversation, and this teaches us how not to behave, right, in a conversation. And so what's happening in this clip is that they're at Netherfield. This is back when Elizabeth is nursing her sister. And so when we go back and look at his behavior, what happens is Elizabeth's mother who's a total nutcase, 
is is there. She comes there and she's trying to just make a little nice conversation. She comes a into the talk. room, a little small talk. I'm like, you know, isn't the country lovely? And he, the conversation just blows up in his face because he's unwilling to move an inch towards meeting anybody else in the middle at a conversational. I believe level. that you commented in our last episode that as someone who had social anxiety, you were terrified of small talk. Yeah. And found it to be its its own source of anxiety. It absolutely is. And one of the one of the things that makes small talk so hard is because when you are socially anxious, all you can really think about or feel is your own anxiety. It's really hard to become interested in what other people are saying or doing because you're so occupied with yourself. That makes you a very poor listener. It makes you not follow up with questions. Um, I remember when um, a good friend of mine in high school, um, she asked me one day, oh, how was your trip to Arizona? I remember this very clearly because I just gone. And I was like, I can't even believe that you remember, but who cares? Like, I would never remember someone else's <laughs> plans to go on a trip because when I was listening to them, I was just like, yeah, I'm freaking out. Um, not always. I mean, obviously, it wasn't always the case. I mean, I could still interact with my good friends, but a lot of the time, I really just, just filtered out what they said because I was thinking about how to end the conversation. But um, so that makes it, it makes him have less empathy for the people around him also. And he really fails. And I think this is a good example of why people try to say, oh, he's on the autism spectrum as well. It's because of this next clip. Well, you have a sweet room here. I think you will never want to leave Netherfield now you are come here. I believe I should be happy to live in the country forever. Wouldn't you, Darcy? You would? You don't find the society somewhat confined and unvarying for your taste? Confined and unvarying indeed it is not, sir. The country is a vast deal pleasanter than town, whatever you may say about it. Mama, you mistake Mr. Darcy's meaning. Do I? Do I? He seems to think the country nothing at all. Mama. Confined, unvarying, I would have him know we dine with four and twenty families. (laughs) (laughs) Mama, have you seen Charlotte Lucas since I came away? Yes, she called yesterday with Sir William. What an agreeable man he is. That is my idea of good breeding. And those persons who fancy themselves very important and never open their mouths quite mistake the matter. I love how he, Darcy, you can tell he is shocked to be included in the conversation, first of all. (laughs) When Bingley says, don't you agree? And Darcy's like, you do? (laughs) Really? (laughs) These people? (laughs) You don't find it a little... That, and that's not the time to say your real opinion. Yeah. That is the, if, you know, this, the, that is not the time. That is the time to be like, oh, I'm having a lovely time. You don't have to say what you don't mean, which is what he doesn't understand. He doesn't yet understand that the goal is not to be insincere like you think people are insincere. The goal is to unite truth and civility. Which is a direct quote, actually, from Pride and Prejudice, when Elizabeth is talking to someone who is annoying, and she says, it, Austin says, she tried to unite truth and civility in a few short sentences, which is the essence of why Elizabeth is a great socializer and also an amazing person who stands, sticks with her values, is because she always finds a way through that thicket. And that's something he's never tried. I, but I think that 
he understands that that is what some people do. When he has the horrible first proposal, he one of the things he throws at her is, if I had concealed my true feelings and flattered you. I mean, he understands that that's what people do. But then he follows it up with the disguise of, and kind is my warrants. So he refuses to engage in that type of behavior. So it's not it's not that he doesn't understand that's what people do. Yeah. It's just that he has basically decided. Right. And I think this goes back to what you were saying in our last episode where he rationalizes his anxiety. I don't have to do those things. I don't have to socialize with these people because I am inherently better. Mm-hmm. And so he creates a reason for himself not to have to practice. Yeah, I think that that's exactly it. He's not autistic. He he totally comprehends what's going on. He just has a hard time with it, and so he thinks he doesn't have to try. And so, I wonder if the confined and unvaring response was also supposed to be kind of a like a stage whisper, like you don't find it kind of <laughs> confined, and then but he just says it to the room. And once you give uh, Mrs. Bennett something like that, it's like well, she's never gonna let it go. No, and she does not let something go. <laughs> I mean, she's so funny. Now, Kristen, speaking of Mrs. Bennett, I've, I've heard, I've heard this somewhere. It might just be a rumor. I'm not sure, but I've heard that she has a problem with her nerves. <laughs> yes. She's a, a nervous Nellie. She is. That's the nice way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Kristen is uniting truth <laughs> and stability. <laughs> this is a perfect example. <laughs> Whereas um, Darcy would say, that bitch is cray. I would as soon call her mother a wit. Right? <laughs> like that's the insult. You, somebody asks him, "Do you think Elizabeth Bennet is pretty?" Right at the very beginning, he's like, "I would as soon call her mother a wit." You know, she's you know she's pretty dumb. Yeah, she is pretty dumb. And, and but you can tell you can tell how inappropriate her reaction is to Darcy. I mean, when Darcy is added to Mrs. Bennet, it's an explosive combination of people on both sides who are really not very good at reading social cues at all. And, um, and Elizabeth is there, desperate to get the conversation back on track. So, how Charlotte? <laughs> yeah, let's change the conversation. <laughs> Real smooth conversation. <laughs> like, Darcy has to confront all of these mistaken assumptions that he has about how, how it's okay for him to so- socialize with people. And his brutal honesty is one of the things that lost him, you know, Elizabeth's respect. So to sum up what happens in the film up to this point, Elizabeth goes home, Darcy goes back to wherever he goes, and then Elizabeth's aunt and uncle say, hey, we have a great, we have great news. We're going to take you on a trip. We are going to take you all around. We're going to go visit the lake country. Why does this ever happen to me? Why doesn't my aunt and uncle show up and they're like, let's go on a month long trip to the lake district. But you actually went to the Lake District. Well, I did, but, you know, not... No, was it amazing? It was beautiful. It was, and we went to the Peaks as well, which was also very lovely. If you have the opportunity, it's not easy to get to um, in England. There's quite a few um, train rides you need to take to get there, but it is pretty much that beautiful, bucolic, rolling hills and lakes, shimmering lakes that you see in the movies. It really just looks like that. And tourism was around in this age, and the lakes was a very common thing to go go tour. And another thing that people did in this time was that they would go to rich people's houses, private homes, this was a totally accepted thing, and go talk to the housekeeper, and she would give you a tour of the house. 
I should point out that you can still do that's still very common in Europe, and that's one of the ways that these families, once land did not become the primary moneymaker, that's one of the ways that these large families were able to keep these houses was they opened them up to the public and you you, you go now and you have to pay admission and take a tour. But they are where these families live still, mm-hmm. but you can tour the home. What we're talking about back in the 1800s, you'd just show up. Yeah. Ring the doorbell. Right. They didn't have any kind of admission system. Yeah. Like, hey, we heard this house. It was a maze ball. (laughs) We'd like to see it. I've come to view the tapestries. Yeah. Yeah. And so when Elizabeth goes on this journey, her aunt is actually from uh, the little village next to Darcy's estate. This is back in the day when homes had names. So Darcy's estate is Pemberley, for those who don't know. So she's... They, they decide to see Pemberley, and she has a moment of, oh, I don't know if I want to do that, but then she hears that he's out of town. So she's like, it'll be fine. I'll just go walk around his house. But it's he, not going to be awkward at all. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> and um, and I'll just hide whatever happened. And But you, you can imagine how surreal it is to know somebody in your social circle, hang out with them all the time, you know, at Sir William Lucas's house. And then when you go on vacation, you take a tour of this rich person's house. And it's just it's a stark illustration of the difference in their, their level of wealth. And also, it's just totally surreal. I mean, I still do that. When I know that my friends are out of town, <laughs> I just go over to their houses and take a tour of the house. I mean, sometimes I have to break a window to get in. But, I mean, what's a little B&E between friends, right? I want to see how the other half lives. And you know there is a part of her that's curious, too. Absolutely. Like, what could I have lived... What have had? I don't think that she even she has never seen an estate as grand as Pemberley, and I think that's made pretty clear. And so I don't think she even understood how rich Darcy she is. Definitely did not understand until she that. sees Pemberley. And I have heard that this is kind of a source of controversy among some people, some critics of Lizzie's character, and that she only starts to come around on Darcy when she sees his beautiful grounds. And I think she makes a joke about it later. Yes, I personally don't hold to that. Um, I don't think that she's, she is practical. I don't think she's materialistic, but her mind is basically blown. This is actually addressed in the text where she's walking around there and she thinks to herself, and of, of all this, I could have been mistress. And in the book, it says, this is not a movie, but in the book, it says, then she realized she would never have been able to invite her aunt and uncle to this house because they would have been the day class A relatives that Darcy mm-hmm. would have wanted swept under the rug. And the book says it saved her from something like regret. And every, you know, she's a human and actually it happens to the viewer too. You have a visceral reaction to the beauty of his estate. I mean, it, it, when, when they're in the coach and um, they're driving up to the estate, they come around a bend and they can actually see it. Right. And the uncle says, stop the coach. You know, and then they just gawk at it because it's so gorgeous. And you as the viewer gawking at it, too. And the score doesn't help any because yeah. the score is majestic also. Um, you, you do have a visceral response, but I think it is also important. Um, what changes for Elizabeth when she sees this wealth is she finally understands who he is, where he came from, how wealth has warped him. She finally comes to understand that he's so weird because he's so different, because he really did come from a totally different world. And if he has trouble swimming in, you know, the smaller streams with the smaller fish, you know, 
it's because he does feel like a fish out of out of water, I think. I'm loving this fish metaphor, by the way. (laughs) I think you need to keep going with it. Well, what happens, (laughs) what happens, right, when um, they first decide to move into Netherfield? In the last podcast, they said the first thing we hear Darcy say is at at the party when he insults Elizabeth. That's not true, I remember later, because the first thing you hear him say, he's with Bingley, and they're looking at Netherfield, and Bingley says, I really want to take this house. And Darcy says, you'll find a society something savage, right? (laughs) And, uh, and Bingley says in the most British line ever recorded in the, the history of movies, he says, country manners, I think they're charming. <laughs> uh, I would also like to point out that the actor that plays Mr. Bingley is named Crispin Bonham Carter. He's Helena Carter, Bonham Carter's brother. But is that not the most ridiculously British name you've ever heard? Crispin Bonham Carter. It's like her third cousin or something. Oh, whatever. Actually. He's a national treasure. He has so many lines in the <laughs> movie that are just so adorably goofy. And he's such a goober. <laughs> <laughs> but that's kind of Bingley's charm. Yeah, and, and it makes you wonder how... But, you know, the other thing about Darcy is, this is, a, this is a good thing to point out, Darcy is friends with Bingley. First of all, they're totally different people. Um, but Bingley is unaffected. He never is insincere. He is always the most dear heart, you know, the most candid, wonderful... Oh, bless. That's kind person. of the the emotion that he inspires. You just want to pat him on the head. Yeah, and, like, oh, you oh, cutie. Bless. Yeah, uh, bless. Ah, uh, bless. Um, uh, and Bingley is new money. Bingley nouveau riche. He's nouveau riche, and and his sisters. Um, he's the first generation of his family that has made it into the landed gentry. His father was in trade, and when he was a child, he would not have been allowed to hang out with Darcy. But Darcy, how somehow these people are best friends and they go roll out and shoot things, you know? <laughs> and do. Um, and then the ladies do needlework. I mean, that's, that's how it goes, right? Right, right. And uh, it is just another illustration of how much he values honesty, I think. I think oh, it's also yeah. worthy of pointing out that I think it's Lizzie m- mentions this when she and Jane are talking about how great. Darcy, um, I'm sorry, how great Bingley is, is if someone like Bingley is friends with Darcy, he can't really be that bad. There must be something else going on there because someone like Bingley, who is so positive and such a joy to be around, you have to question why he would be friends with someone who's such a womp womp. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of a good clue to the reader that there's something else going on here that maybe his behavior is not always as he portrays it to the public. And Elizabeth has to realize that through the story too. When she finally realizes Wickham is a cad, she's like, why did I believe this, this stranger when I know that Bingley is friends But Kristen, there was truth in all his love. I know, I know. And Adrian Lucas is so good at portraying this totally... Um, is it the actor who played Wickham? Yes, the actor who played Wickham. But what I, what I was going to say about that? Oh, so this is this is Elizabeth's story arc that we get now when she's going to Pemberley. And her story arc, I would sum up as give weirdos a chance. <laughs> <laughs> this is the story arc of the people in my life who. Have... Uh, what was the original <laughs> title of Pride and Prejudice, Kristen? First impressions. So I think perhaps the point was that maybe you can't judge someone. Judge a book by its cover. Oh, first impressions. Yeah, I think I think that's 
Absolutely. And that title's a little on the nose, isn't it? Pride and Prejudice is a little better. You have to think about Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> oh my gosh, I see. Uh, like Darcy's too proud, then he's also prejudiced in this way, and Lizzie's prejudiced, but then she's also, oh my God, we're on so many different levels. Jane Austen is a genius. It really, it really, um, it really does work. But um, so she visits Pemberley and she realizes he's a weirdo for a good cause. And then all of his past behavior suddenly shifts. It gets thrown into a new light. I, I would definitely be willing to be labeled a weirdo if I could be completely effing rich. <laughs> I'm <laughs> just saying. You have the personality to overcome people's first impressions of you. As Are you saying I don't make person. a good first impression, Kristen? No, you. you um, no, I was, <laughs> what I'm saying is that people, you know, have these preconceptions. You, yes. would, you would definitely be able, able to overcome that. Now, I mean, now I know you said you had. And if not by. Um, force of personality than definitely by physical force. I'll hold them down until they like me. Which is pretty much how I got my boyfriend. Speaking of your boyfriend. Oh, hey, so we're joined in the studio tonight by my boyfriend. And so we're going to have him now go and fetch us our wine refill because, in case you couldn't notice, we're definitely drinking while we record this. But we're of age. We're, um, it's totally legal. It's completely legal. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's keep going. We're going to try something a little different. We are going to narrate a mostly dialogue-less section of the miniseries. This is the infamous Mr. Darcy swims in the lake and he has the wet shirt. And oh my God, women everywhere lose their minds and their panties. Uh, <laughs> uh, there, this is mostly a, there's not a lot of dialogue here until he runs into Lizzie on the grounds, which is one of my favorite scenes mm -hmm. because it's so awkward. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Uh, but we're going to use it as an, to talk about kind of the symbolism and what's going on and how it plays into Kristen's thesis. So we're going to kind of just describe what's happening in this scene and I'm sure it will be amazing and not weird. <laughs> uh, famous last words. Okay. All right. So Darcy has arrived back at Pemberley somewhat unexpectedly. They were told by the housekeeper that he would be gone for several more days. But he is now riding up to his house and he sees it's so beautiful. Oh, I'm so happy to be home. And he sees it's very hot. It's obviously hot. He's, he's kind of so sweaty. He's so hot and sweaty and he's <sighs> angsty. And he's wearing wool. I mean, I mean, he's wearing five layers of wool. So, but you can tell on, on his face, he's he's cotton bonds. He's he's very angsty. He, you know, you just know he's thinking about her. And he sees this. Actually, it's kind of scum covered, but it's supposed to be a very beautiful <laughs> lake. lake pond on Pemberley's grounds. I've actually seen that lake. I have been to the house that stood in for Pemberley. It's called Lime Hall in England and it is a very lovely little lake so he's very hot he's gonna go for a little swim meanwhile <laughs> meanwhile Elizabeth is in the house and she is just walked up to a portrait listen to the score beautiful resolution note she sees his face she's just realized you know about all his struggles and Darcy's um, taking off his clothes I'd just like to point that out yeah oh I'm sorry um, yeah, Darcy is, he's, he's you could taking say, off his hat. He's, you could say he's shedding his armor. That's exactly, okay, so people say that this scene is beefcake, and it's, it, you know, I thought that for a long time, too. Why did they add this in? Everyone teases us for this, and he's in this linen, wet linen shirt and whatever. But this is brilliant. I don't know who suggested it. It was Simon Langton, Andrew Davies, or whoever. But having him shed five layers of clothing 
you know, and then jump into the lake and swim. It's an evolution. And in literature and in movies, that kind of water can sometimes be um, symbolic of a baptism and new beginnings. So I think him, they don't actually show him coming out of the water, by the way, but him coming out of the water, he has cleansed himself of his prior misdeeds. And you're going to see in just a second, you can hear the music moving towards something. He's going to get a fresh start with Lizzie. Yeah. And be a completely different person. And his, his wet furniture. I, mean, I love this part. The music is so great here. They're getting closer and closer. Neither one knows the other is there. Building and building. And his shirt isn't even actually that wet, people. No, and it's like a wet t-shirt contest for a guy. I mean, this is what people are giving us a hard time where he's fully clothed, guys. Still fully clothed. She's coming down the hill. She's looking around. She looks over. Miss Bennett. I... Uh, I did not expect to see you, sir. We understood all the family from home, or we should never have presumed... I returned a day early. Excuse me, your parents are in good health. Uh, yes, they are very well. Uh, thank you, sir. I'm glad to hear it. How long have you been in this part of the country? About two days, sir. And where are you staying? At the Inn at Lambton. Oh, yes, of course. Well, I'm, I'm just arrived myself. And your parents are in good health? And all your sisters? <laughs> yes. They're all in excellent health, sir. Excuse me. The man himself, I presume. Just as handsome as in his portrait, though perhaps a little less formally attired. <gasps> we must leave here at once. Oh, oh we must oh. leave at once. I love that line. It's so great. It's so great. It's so awkward. I mean, it's totally romantic, right? But it's so awkward. Oh, my God. It's so awkward. I, I've died a thousand deaths watching <laughs> this scene over and over because this is like... I've had this conversation, different words, essentially same content, so many times in my life. Where You've come home and found someone that you would awkwardly propose to wandering around your estate grounds? That is I've, weird. I've, I've been taken by surprise and had to make a conversation and no idea what the fuck I'm going to say. And I've, you know, what he does in this conversation is so funny because... And this is also mentioned in the text. In the text, it's the conversation is not written out verbatim. Andrew Davies wrote that... The, dialogue and it's great but in the text uh, austin does mention that darcy inquires after elizabeth's family more than once and okay so this question um is are your parents in good health this is the 19th century version of what's up How, what's new what's new because 50 50 chance since i last saw they could you be dead. somebody died <laughs> <laughs> this question is is very much my mother got a trifling cold yeah and has died yeah, and and um, and then you notice that um, so he he's, he has no idea what to say, but obviously he wants to show her that he can converse, that he can be nice. So this is his fumbling first attempt. I mean, he's just asking random, unconnected questions. It is by far the most superficial conversation they've ever had, and that is kind of a revelation <laughs> yeah. because he is incapable. Of superficial conversation. It's always, you must allow me to tell you how ardently I love and admire you. <laughs> or, um, 
neither of us perform well for strangers or it's just kind of deep, truthful thoughts. But for him to say, I'm sorry, your parents are well, it's just, she's never seen him do this yeah. before. And it, it totally throws her off too. And, um, you know, you hear that once he leaves, you, you hear it come out how freaked out she is. Um, <laughs> we must leave here at once. <laughs> I just thought that line, oh, perhaps of the less formal. Yeah, because he's, he feels like a total boob. I mean, he's there. In his, he's like half undressed, which I'm sure is some sort of scandal for the 19th century. And, um, you know, and he has to make this awkward conversation. And you notice how he ends it. He just says, excuse me. And walks away. Isn't it interesting? And that's though, what I used to do in college. I didn't even say. I thought you just mic dropped and walked I away. I just walked away. But that's what he's doing. He's like, okay, can't do it anymore. I gotta go. I think. Isn't it interesting though that even though he's half dressed, I mean, he is fully clothed by our standards, but back then he's half dressed. He comes across her, who he still loves, unexpectedly at his home, and yet he's still more comfortable conversing with her in a small talk situation than he ever has been before. Just being at Pemberley is enough for him to sort of loosen the reins a bit. He loosened the cravat and he loosened the reins. <laughs> oh my shift, God. The way the novel is structured, first part at her house, second part on neutral ground at Captain, Lady Captain de Burgh's, and then third part at his place, it's like he's getting his say now in the story, and he's getting his chance to read the oh, I never himself. thought about Kristen. That is that is an excellent observation that never even occurred to me. When we see him in situ, it all comes together. And now he gets to play the host. I mean, now he gets to step into the role, because as you will hear, the next conversation that we're going to play, he does a lot better. He goes into the house, he dresses the fastest that any Regency man has ever dressed somehow, puts on 90 pieces of clothing, <laughs> runs out... And he's got those big Colin Firth legs, so he's, like, strolling, strolling, strolling. <laughs> well, this tells you how large their home is, that in the time it takes Lizzie and her aunt and uncle to kind of walk around the side, he has already run up to his room, changed. And, but this is a good point. His legs are incredibly long. As someone who is often called Stumpy. <laughs> who calls you Stumpy? Oh, uh, my God. <laughs> that would be the boyfriend. Um, as someone who is often called Stumpy, I can appreciate that the leg length can certainly come in handy. <laughs> and it does, as he strides very purposefully towards Elizabeth and her aunt and uncle, who are preparing to leave because Elizabeth is in a tizzy. And this, Lizzie is in a tizzy. Lizzie is in quite a tizzy. And this is what, this is what happens. Miss Bennett, please allow me to apologize for not receiving it properly just now. You were not leaving. We were, sir. I think we must. I hope you're not displeased with Pemberley. No, not at all. Then you approve of it? Very much. But I think there are few who would not approve. But your good opinion is rarely bestowed and therefore more worth the earning. Thank you. Would you do me the honour of introducing me to your friends? Certainly. Mr and Mrs Edward Gardner, Mr Darcy. Mrs Gardner is my aunt, Mr Darcy. My sister Jane stayed at their house in Cheapside when she was lately in London. Delighted to make your acquaintance, madam. Delighted, sir. You're staying in Lambton, I hear. Yes, sir. I grew up there as a girl. Delightful village. I remember running from Pemberley to Lambton as a boy almost every day in the horse chestnut season. There was one very fine tree there, I remember. On the green, by the smithy. The very one. <gasps> Mr Gardner, do you care for fishing? Indeed I do, sir, when I get the chance of it. And if you have time, sir, you must come and fish in my trout stream. Or there are carp, tench and pike in the lake here if your bent runs to course fishing. 
I shall be happy to provide you with rods and tackle, show you the best spots. But let us walk down now. Follow us to the lake, my man will show you. Okay, so he does a lot better here, but a couple of things I want to point out. He does step into the role, he, he, he is helped by stepping into the role of host, and he has a lot of favors in his gift, which makes it easier. But did you notice, and he comes off well, but did you notice that he dominates the conversation, okay? He changes topics really fast. Let's talk about you, let's talk about you, let's talk about fishing. Because stage two of social anxiety is having the conversation and just controlling it so that nobody throws you for a loop. And <clears throat> he also doesn't want her to leave, so he's he, he's filling the air with a cloud of words, and um, that's that's what always struck me about this scene. I mean, he does he does well. And by the way, did you notice you, the audience? Because of course Margaret knows about this, but did you notice when um, Elizabeth said cheat side? Mm -hmm. She thinks once he discovers that these people are the same people he was talking about in his proposal, her inferior connections, that it'll shut down his desire to be friendly. She's testing him for sure. And the way um, Jennifer Ely, is it Ely? Mm -hmm. The way Jennifer Ely plays it is very clever. When she says cheap side, she throws him some kind of side eye <laughs> to see what his response will be. And he does not even blink. Because he's learned. He's, he wants to show her he, he has learned that... The pores are people too. Mm, it's he really finally nice for Darcy. understands that they're people too, and they like horse chestnuts too. <laughs> I mean, can't we all just bond over the tree on the green by the smithy? By the smithy. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, I do, sir. I think this podcast should actually be me and Kristen just quoting the whole movie to each other, <laughs> which off. we often do in competition. Yeah, we have done that before, and we I have quote I totally um, trounced your ass, but. I've, I've gotten a lot worse. Like, like the last podcast we did, I'm, I'm still, I think about it all the time. Now I'm really embarrassed that I got the, um, the first line wrong. It was the truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of good, a good fortune must be, must want. be in want of a wife. I said it wrong, but, but it caught me off guard. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't prepared in my mind to access that. I threw her made. a conversational curveball. Yeah. So I just want everybody to know who is an Austin fan, who was horrified by that in the first podcast that I do actually know that line. You may not have heard this, but Kristen sometimes has social anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> so it's difficult for her. <laughs> to have impromptu conversations. That's <laughs> awesome. It's true. And it's true. And it's true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> lol. <laughs> Would you like more wine? <laughs> I forget where we were going with this. Um, yeah. You were talking about how he dominates the conversation. That's, that's a point I was, I was trying to make. He's bossy. And he, um, but he he has come through to the other side, and this is the beginning of him to, uh, treating her like a person. And what happens from here is he has them all to dinner. They have a very nice time. Well, when they get caught, um, his friends end up joining, some of whom claim acquaintance with her, <laughs> which is Mr. Bingley and his sisters. Right. So she, the whole, the whole group, they got the old band back together <laughs> and it's Bingley's and Darcy's and Lizzie, but there is an addition this time. That's right. Georgiana, his Darcy's sister, little sister, who is by the way, painfully shy. Okay. Family trait, right? If I remember correctly from the book, Lizzie several times thinks to herself in the way Georgiana presents herself when she invites them to dinner, for example, 
she says, she thinks to her, Lizzie thinks to herself, I can understand why people would see, would think that she comes off as standoffish or prideful. But now that Lizzie kind of understands more about Darcy's character and has heard more about Georgiana, she gets that Georgiana is just really painfully shy. And she thinks this to herself. So I can see why people would find her standoffish. But I, I understand, Lizzie understands, that it's just because she really has a hard time. Georgiana has a hard time talking to people. Is because Lizzie is also a woman, so perhaps she understands the speech patterns and the, the looks and everything. Certainly at that time, you know, it was very different the way women behave. Maybe that's why, part of why she didn't really get, although Darcy was really a jerk. I mean, you can't, when you go back yeah. and listen to it at the beginning again, you're like, wow, you know, he's really come a long way from. I think we should point out that we are not Darcy apologists. No. I mean, we can point out that he has severe social anxiety and that is an explanation for his behavior, but it's not an excuse. I mean, he is a total jerk. And uh, uh, another thing I was going to say is when Darcy says to her, your opinion um, is rarely, your good opinion is rarely bestowed and therefore more worth the earning. That is, if I'm, uh, if I'm wrong, I'll delete this later, that that is Davies. I'm 99.99% sure. Austin didn't write that. And I will say that that sentiment has led me wrong in life. <laughs> so as a positive as this um, movie was for me as an awkward girl, um, that sentiment is not true. So I think Andrew Davies um, needs to be called out on the, the fact that some I think people it's true are just for assholes. Lizzie. Some I think it's true for Lizzie because Lizzie is not Lizzie is not Lizzie. an asshole. You're Lizzie right. is very, but Lizzie typically is not overly prejudiced. She is in Darcy's case, of course. Um, but I think that she is the type of person where if she is your friend, again, like I was saying with Bingley and Darcy, Darcy, if Lizzie is your friend, then I think you could trust her opinion of people generally, not when it comes to Darcy, clearly. Yeah. Um, I just love that compliment, though. I wish people still... It is really Why don't moving. you ever talk to me like He's... that, boyfriend? <laughs> Why don't we ever that get compliments guy. like that? That guy, being a guy. <laughs> I see you on your cell phone. Yeah, he's on his cell phone. <laughs> Go get me some more wine. Now he's mad. Never He's actually, yes, he is on his cell phone, but he is reading Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> he's such a sweetheart. Oh, he looked up. He looked it up and was reading I the text of the scene that I, we were just I, watching. I thought it would be funny to needle you, but now I regret it so much because you're the sweetest guy alive. <laughs> Maybe I was prejudiced against <laughs> Bay because of the patriarchy. Yeah, the patriarchy. <laughs> um, you don't mind if I say your name. Bay's here. It's awesome. So, um, and uh, I, I, I want to go through before we finish up, though, because we're, we're sort of, I won't, you know, we won't play you every single clip of what happens. I think the, the takeaway is there has been a clear progression yeah. in his behavior, his ability to talk to people. Um, I love the, the part where Lizzie says, I can't imagine what has brought about this transformation in his character. And her aunt, who, by the way, I think is one of the best characters. Oh, yeah. Even in the book, she's actually more badass mm -hmm. um, than she's even in the, the movie. She looks at Lizzie and she says, can you not? <laughs> yes. It's so obvious Girl. that Darcy is in love with Lizzie <laughs> that her aunt sees it after seeing them interact for Look five minutes. Yeah. And for the rest of the book, her aunt is basically dropping hints mm -hmm. to Lizzie. Like, <laughs> he still loves you. He still, I mean, she doesn't know about the prior proposal as far as I know. But she's basically keeps telling Lizzie, like, 
the reason why he keeps doing all of this stuff is because he loves you. So when she says, can you not like, don't you get it? He's actively trying to improve himself to be worthy of you. And you know, what happens next is some family drama that Darcy fixes. And there's one more clip I want to play before we play the proposal, the second proposal. There's one more clip I want to play that was really influential in my life and influential as a person who had a hard time, really hard time standing up for herself because of anxiety and not knowing how to say what she wants, not knowing how to say what I wanted and tell people what I wanted. I was so scared of what they were going to, how they were going to react. I was so scared of, of saying, you know, no, I don't want to do X, Y, and Z thing. That this clip was also very important in my life. So what happens is that right before Darcy proposes, Elizabeth... The second time. The second time. Uh, Elizabeth is now very much in love with him because of what he's done to fix her family drama. And she's seriously thinking about him. She doesn't know if he'll ever come back and propose. And then out of nowhere, this aunt shows up, his aunt, who is... Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Lady de Bourgh, who is an overbearing, obnoxious rude because she's rich she can get away with saying anything just like darcy uh she comes out of nowhere and says i'm not uh you are you girl you are not marrying him he um is too good for you you're gonna pollute his we should we should point out that there has been a rumor circulating at this point that darcy has proposed to lizzie that's right i'm not exactly sure where who i probably one of the in the book maybe miss bingley i don't um, know the good na- good natured gossiping lucases ah. who did watch him stare at her for a month that's true he, when he was being the creeper yeah and so assumes that now that lizzie's sister jane is getting married to darcy's best friend mr bingley uh spoilers <laughs> that um he, they assume that that's what's inevitably going to happen so the rumor has spread throughout the countryside, through the four and twenty families, and now it has reached the ears of Lady Catherine. And when she hears this, she is like, "Oh no!" The woman who plays um, Lady Catherine de Bourgh is a national treasure as well as Crispin Bonham Carter, and she does such a good <laughs> job. But she really, she has this British, intimidating British voice, and she really pretty much shouts at Lizzie. I mean, she's an extremely overbearing woman, and Elizabeth Bennet. Um, in the way that, that we've all come to know and love, just digs her heels in and sticks by her principles and does not let anybody, no matter how important or how rich, talk to her that way. He's like, no, you can't talk to me this way. Especially, I would add, in her own house. It's like, you do not come in here. You do not come in my house yeah. and talk to me like that. And that she's just such a role model, and I think this scene has a lot to do with, with why, so I'll play it. Whatever my connections may be, if your nephew does not object to them, they can be nothing to you. Tell me once and for all, are you engaged to him? I am not. And will you promise me never to enter into such an engagement? I will make no promise of the kind, and I must beg you not to importune me any further on the subject. Not so hasty, if you please. I have another objection. Your youngest sister's infamous elopement. I know it all. Oh, he's such a girl to be my nephew's sister-in-law. Are the shades of Pemberley to be thus polluted? You can have nothing further to say. You have insulted me by every possible method. I must beg to return to the house. You you have no regard, then, for the honor and credit of my nephew. And 
feeling. Selfish girl. You refuse to oblige me. You refuse the claims of duty, honor, gratitude. You are determined to ruin him and make him the contempt of the world. I am only resolved to act in a manner which will constitute my own happiness without reference to you or to any person so wholly unconnected with me. And this is your final resolve? Very well, I shall know how to act. Yeah, and that clip was really long, but I, I wanted to make uh, the build-up to what she says clear because this woman is shouting at her a lot. And, and she's actually fleeing from her yeah, at one point. She turns around and walks back to the house and is like, I'm not going to stand here and listen to this. But Lady Catherine doesn't care. She just continues to yeah, shout at her. Stop opportun- in, you know, importuning me. Yeah. Stop <laughs> importuning me on the subject. Um, but it's that last line that Lizzie says, delivered with such trembling energy by Jennifer Ely, that um, is incredible. Um, I'm only resolved to act in a manner which will constitute my own happiness without reference to you. Someone who is so wholly unconnected. Yes. Yeah. Why should I care what Your you think? Your opinion doesn't matter, you know. You know, and that, you know, is a powerful thing to say. It's a powerful lesson. Like, watching that scene, you... It's an emotional scene, and you really feel empowered by her. I don't know, I don't know how to explain it. I always felt really empowered by her. I think if you care so much about what everyone else thinks of you, you would become paralyzed and unable to do anything. And miss out on marrying Mr. Darcy. I know. And that's, you can't allow people, no matter how important, no matter who they are, you know. If Mr. Darcy poses to you in a proper way, which he hasn't yet, she doesn't know that he, she thinks that he still loves her. His doing, his taking care of their family drama, their family scandal is pretty good proof that he is still in love with her. But they, her, she's not seen him mm-hmm. he doesn't come to since her. she saw him last at Pemberley. So it's she is still holding out hope. And there is one thing I wanted to mention, actually. There is a great line when she is coming around on how she feels about him. And she's talking to Jane. And she mentions how the scandal is Lydia running away with Mr. Wickham. And Lydia is just like a waste of space. Her younger sister, yes. Lydia. Uh, but... She, Mr. Darcy knows about this because she was with him when she got the news and she immediately left. And Lizzie is talking about how the idea that he knows about it is horrible. And Jane says, I'm paraphrasing, Jane says something like, why should his good opinion matter to you? It's never mattered to you before. And Lizzie says, I don't know, but the idea that he is out there in the world and thinking ill of me, it just bothers her. And I've always loved that line because when there is someone who you care about, and if you have a fight with them, if they, you know, say there's rumors about like what's going on with Lydia and Wickham, when you think about them having lost respect for you, it's like a knife in your heart. It can be awful. What is it saying that love is the ir- irresistible desire to be desired irresistibly? And if you're not desired by the object of your mm-hmm. affection, it's irresistible to think about that fact and to think about what went wrong and how you can fix it. You're just fixated on it. And it's, it's the essence of how love is awful. There, <laughs> there also is nothing more attractive than someone who is in love with you. Yeah. So remember when we were talking about in part one, we mentioned how Darcy thought he was making it very clear to Lizzie in their verbal word their wordplay that he was falling in love with her and when he shows up to propose he expects her to get it 
to know that this is coming. And she's completely gobsmacked. She has no idea. But from that point on, she knows that he was interested in her. And now she learns more and more about him. I think it's human nature. The, someone so rich, so handsome. And now that she knows he's not a complete jerk, is in love with her, his stock keeps going up. And his stock goes up with the viewer as well. <laughs> it's, yeah. We, I feel the story is definitely told from her perspective. And, um, and then those two crazy kids work it out. So we'll, 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 we'll listen to that. You are too generous to trifle with me. If your feelings are what they were last April, tell me so at once. My affections and wishes are unchanged. But one word from you will silence me on this subject forever. Oh, my feelings. My feelings are... I'm ashamed to remember what I said then. My feelings are so different. In fact, they are quite the opposite. Gorgeous score. Oh, but you didn't play the best part. Oh, when he's talking about... Maybe I will. Okay, you want me to play Yeah, you have to play both. You have to play the extended version. Lady Catherine told me of her meeting with you. I may say that her disclosure had quite the opposite effect to the one she intended. It taught me to hope as I'd scarcely ever allowed myself to hope before. I knew that had you absolutely decided against me, you would have acknowledged it openly. <laughs> yes, you know enough of my frankness to believe me capable of that. After abusing you so abominably to your face, I could have no scruple in abusing you to all your relations. And what did you say of me that I did not deserve? My behavior to you at the time was unpardonable. I can hardly think of it without abhorrence. You're a proof I shall never forget. Had you behaved in a more gentlemanlike manner, you know not how those words have tortured me. Not the smallest idea of their ever being taken in such a way. I can easily believe it. You thought me devoid of every proper feeling. I'm sure you did. The turn of your countenance I shall never forget. You said that I could not have addressed you in any possible way that would induce you to accept me. Do not repeat what I said then. No, I've been a selfish being all my life. As a child, I was given good principles, but was left to follow them in pride and conceit. And such I might still have been, but for you. Dearest, loveliest Elizabeth. So when he says to her, and so it might have been, if not for you, dearest, loveliest Elizabeth. You know, I didn't play that part, though, because I wanted to end that clip and go, damn it, Maggie, this is what people are on our, our, our you know, case about. They don't kiss. They don't even really look at each other that much. They don't touch each other at all. They don't hold hands afterwards. And it's not like, I'll love you forever. It's just like, tell me if you don't want to do this. It's so understated. There's no cliff. There's no ring. They don't even talk about what they're talking no, about. No. You know, Every conversation they have is completely awkward. Let's just point it. Even <laughs> this one. Yeah, he hasn't really got If your feelings are still what they are, tell me also at once. And she's like, they're opposite. But if you didn't know what they were talking about, you yeah. would just be like, what? Uh, and um, he does call her dearest, loveliest Elizabeth. In the movie, as, as in the book, I think in the book it is delivered with a little bit less awkwardness. I think in the movie he kind of sounds like a dork. <laughs> <laughs> I 
doesn't he? But ladies like the dorks. Uh, it's really moving because he's trying, you know, he's trying so hard. Dearest, loveliest. He's so nasal. See, Dearest, me. loveliest. Oh. <laughs> I am going to have to disagree, Kristen. Oh, okay. Um, I think that the way he says it is actually, it feels so truthful. He kind of says it and shyly looks at her. Mm. Darcy, we've talked about how he has social anxiety. And, you know, when we were first talking about it, I said that he was shy. And then you said, well, it goes beyond that. Um, but when I use the word shy in this context, you know, when, when we're talking about people in love and we say they say something shyly, blushingly, that's what it seems to me. He is admitting another truth. Yeah, he's, it's true. You really put yourself on the line when you say things like that you know, for the first time. And he's brave. He's know. very brave to be wearing that hat. Although it's funny, the other thing he does is all he wants to talk about after she accepts his you know, unstated proposal is, hey, remember those crappy things you said about me? Yeah. Remember when you said yeah. you'd never accept me? Remember when you just said this? And it was Joke's awful. on you! <laughs> and he's finally getting catharsis from those moments, and so of course he wants to talk about them. But uh, This is the part where you find out it was actually just a big, long bet with Billy the whole time <laughs> that he could get Lizzie to fall in love with him. And he really doesn't mean it. Um, he just wanted to see if he could get the ugly girl at the high school to wait. No, that's, that's, uh, that's, a diff- I'm sorry. That's a different movie. <laughs> are, you doing like, are you doing like Carrie or something? No. What's the one where she's coming down the stairs and it's kiss me and she like trips. It's not Can't Hardly Wait. That's completely it's never different. Been no, it's not Never Been Kissed. Why are all these movies the <laughs> what same? What's the movie? Bane is. She's all that. <laughs> Thank you. From the very beginning, when he and Bingley are talking about taking Netherfield. So I heard there's some like ugly, pretty girls. I bet you can't get one of them to marry you by the end. You know what's funny is that my friend Arnie Pearlstein has a lot of theories about. And we're hoping to have him on I'm, the podcast at some point. I would love to do a podcast with him. On Emma, which is his big his big expertise, he believes um, this is copyright Arnie, that, that there's a lot of slash fiction out there that you know, you know, loves the same idea that Darcy and Bingley are in a gay relationship and love each other, oh. and so that kind of support your your hypothesis is some kind of, <laughs> of, of bet or ploy um, that it, it's rooted in possible literary shadow story truth there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, of course, of course I'm kidding. Um, and I remember the first time I saw the 1995 miniseries, I was 15 and I remember being kind of disappointed that it didn't have that big payoff Mm -hmm. because that's what we're used to in Hollywood. Right. Um, but now watching it as an adult and seeing, how relationships really work. It just feels so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And of course they do have a kiss at the end. So they're married. Yes. I, they are married. They're in a gentlemen. weird four way marriage. It is this, but other. it's also this really weird angle when they kiss. Oh, and yeah. she has that piece of Holly stuck in yeah, her boob. It looks like he's kissing her chin. Yeah. It's but anyway, he also has the biggest smile you've ever seen. You only see his teeth. The only time you see his teeth, is that last scene where he smiles and there's, there's teeth in his smile. Right before he detaches his jaw. <laughs> <laughs> That's also a shadow block. <laughs> Mr. Darcy's really an alien. Oh, and he detaches his jaw and bites. <laughs> no, but it's true. I remember when I watched it, though, that struck me. He has this huge grin mm-hmm. on his face. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing. It's, it's an amazing acting choice, I think, yeah. by Colin Firth to show that. It's, again, there's no dialogue. It's, they're just looking really happy, and yeah. he just has this 
huge smile. It really does something. It really makes you, and you know, it really does something to you. It, to see his smile like that, it was always very satisfying because you're looking for that closure. One of the things Andrew Davies believes is that once you have resolved the main problem of the story, you have to wrap it up really quickly. He has said, I didn't want to do those scenes between the proposal and their because wedding. Because the book does go on for yeah, quite a while. When I first read it scenes. in high school, I was shocked that there was so much more. I saw the series first, and then I read the book. And I was shocked at how much there still is. And there's a whole epilogue mm-hmm. in the book where it discusses what happens to each character, which I love. I love by that the way. too, because you're cute. You're invested in all of the characters by this point, even mm-hmm. Kitty, who yeah. is kind of useless. But okay. So <laughs> if we can talk, speak about the epilogue, okay. it's not in the series, as we said. Um, but we did mention in the first episode, we were going to focus on the text. Remember one of the things that horrifies everyone about the Bennets is when they're at the Netherfield ball. And Mrs. Bennett says, and that will throw the girls into the path of other rich men. <laughs> And that's basically what happens. (laughs) Kitty starts hanging out at Pemberley with Lizzie and Darcy, where she does not become, she moves off the path she was on to become like Lydia. Foolish, silly, boy obsessed. She becomes less insipid. Yes. (laughs) She actually becomes, I think, quite a lovely young woman. Yes. And she ends up meeting all of these great rich guys. So at the end of the day, Mrs. Bennett. Was right. It was actually kind of right. At the end of Bridget Jones's diary, which is of course an adaptation in the British version, which we can't see in America, uh, Gemma Jones, who plays Bridget Jones's mother, says, "What's well, clear from the beginning? She should have listened to her mother." <laughs> and that's exactly the point you're making. And a lot of people have made that point. Mrs. Bennet, as annoying as she is, is a hundred percent right. She is invested in the survival of her daughters, in the continuance of the you know of their position in the landed gentry. Had they never really been married and had Collins inherited the estate and kicked them out, they would have become what? Governesses. They would have become Sense and Sensibility, which is basically yes. what happens. Sense and Sensibility picks up where pride, not to go completely off topic here. No, hopefully if we continue these because, podcasts, yeah, we'll talk about, we'll talk about it. it. Sense and Sensibility was always interesting to me because the plot starts at the point where Pride and Prejudice would, would have ended. Absolutely right. There's so many things. There's so many things in Austin that it's amazing. So, Kristen, why don't we wrap up? Do you have any Wait. final... Oh, I'm sorry. Bonus clip. There's a bonus clip. I keep talking all along. Faye's freaking out. He's really excited. <laughs> all along, I've been saying, Austin teaches you how to socialize, right? And there's this one bonus clip that um, Austin tells teaches you very important information about how to talk to people. And this character, Mr. Collins who is a total goober, who is obsessed with the fact that he works for a very rich woman, Lady Catherine Berg, who lives in a place called Rosings, a big house called Rosings. I've heard it has quite a few windows. (laughs) And it um, goes to a a party with people he's never met before. He's, you know, visiting the Bennets, and he goes to a party. And this is how he tries to ingratiate himself with the host. What a charming apartment you'll have here, Mrs. Phillips. Upon my word, it reminds me greatly of the small summer breakfast room at Rosings. Does it indeed, sir? I'm much obliged to you, I'm sure. I'm sure that Mr. Collins wishes to pay a compliment, Aunt. Does he? I see. Rosings Park, we must understand, is very grand indeed. Oh, indeed it is. Oh, my... Dear madam, if you thought that I intended any slight on your excellent and very comfortable arrangements, I am mortified. Rosings Park is the residence of my noble patroness, Lady K. 
Catherine de Burke. Oh, now I understand. Now, the <laughs> chimney piece in the second drawing room alone cost £800. Now I see it's clear there's no offence at all. <laughs> Will you oblige me and sit down to a game of whist? Right, so number one rule of conversing with people, don't start talking about random stuff and assume that they know everybody you've ever met and everything about the place you work and you have to give people context. This is also an important lesson. One of the many lessons that Austin teaches us throughout Bay's making a face. It looks like you're guilty of the same uh, He does that all the time. Infraction. Gentle listeners. <laughs> He and my mother actually do this. This is a total tangent, but I know that at this point you're probably just as drunk as we are. Um, He and my mother do this where they start having, and I'm sure I do it too, they start having conversations in their heads and then pick up speaking to you as if you were present (laughs) for the conversation in their head. For example, we'll be sitting in the car and he'll go, I think the point he was trying to make... And I have no idea. I can sometimes pick it up from what is the follow-up is. My mother does the same exact thing where she'll look to me, but I also want to say, and I'll just think, also what? What did you say first? And these people need to go watch Pride and Prejudice 50 times, and then maybe they will understand. Uh, I'm just saying pronouns. You need to, like, use proper... Names to give me some idea. That's right. Yeah. Use your pronouns. <laughs> you, you know, look up your SAT words to abhor. Don't abhor your big words. <laughs> and the, that's that's how we will. We'll, <laughs> well, let's not. Up. Let's. Why don't you, Kristen, kind of sum up everything for us about Mr. Darcy and his journey through Pride and Prejudice? Mr. Darcy is actually a sensitive guy underneath the bad behavior and that's the essence of every romance (laughs) harlequin romance or whatever that has been written since this story was published but hey it's a formula that works but it works because well it works here because once again it's a story about people who could be real it's a story about people you know it's a story about idiots who make bizarre conversation in your weird social circle that you know and um like mr collins and anyway Darcy has a revelation. He realizes that nobody is born knowing how to have a conversation. And it's about practice. It's about trying. It's about doing the best that you can and always keeping other people's feelings in mind. And if you do that, you really can't go wrong. I think one of the most beautiful things about the story is how Lizzie's kind of arc and, say, journey is uncovering information about Darcy. We said that the original title of the book was first impressions and her character. I don't, she does go through changes. She learns not to be so prejudiced because she has heard all of these rumors about him. She falls for Wickham's lines. She doesn't have as fundamental change as he does, but her understanding of him changes the way she thinks. And you could almost say that Pride and Prejudice is like a mystery and that the mystery is Darcy. What makes him tick? Why is he like this? The more you uncover about him, he's he's an, he's a parfait. <laughs> he's a Darcy parfait. He's a tall, cool parfait. He's a. Con- <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna go for onion, but then I thought I was been done. We gotta go for the Shrek joke. 
but in all seriousness, the kind of the journey of the book is through Darcy's character and how he not only learns how to behave, but she learns about him. Mm-hmm. And just like, in, and that's kind of the beauty of it is it's so real. You can't learn everything about someone the first time you meet them. It's only as you get to know them that your understanding of them increases and you come to care for them, say that they're your friend, or if they become a lover, you come to love them. Um, and they may be surrounded by kind of archetypes. You know, Jane is the nice girl. Uh, the mother is the crazy mother. Um, Lydia is the flirt. But the two central characters of Pride and Prejudice, Lizzie and Darcy, whose first name is Fitzwilliam, by, by, by the way. way, Lizzie and Darcy are so, have so many depths and are feel so real that I think that's one of the reasons why the novel has become recognized as one of the greatest in English literature. So if you had the first impression that Pride and Prejudice was sappy romance. You were wrong. <laughs> Just schooled you. <laughs> Consider yourself schooled. So I had a really great time yeah, recording too. this with you, Chris. And I think yeah. it was really fun. Yeah. I, I think that we should perhaps continue on discussing other... You want to do Northanger Abbey? Should we do Northanger Abbey next? It's like, you know what? Maybe really we should do Sense of Sensibility play. next, though, because like we said, it picks up. But Northanger Abbey is, and if you want to talk movies, J.J. Field, I do get very, like we were saying, though, I get very fangirly for J.J. Field, who plays the hero in Northanger Abbey. That's right. Don't judge us. It's still intellectual content. Kristen is still giving it's, middle finger. Don't, don't judge us. He's <laughs> really cute. Don't, whatever. Hollywood cast him, not me. The BBC cast him. Kristen, why don't you have some more wine? Uh, here's to you. Here's to you. Um, but I mean, I think that this has been fun. I hope everyone's enjoyed listening to it. We hope to come back and discuss maybe some more Austin. We'll ha- try to have some special guests. Ooh, yeah. On upcoming episodes, including <laughs> Kristen's husband, husband. perhaps. Um, so stay tuned for our next Austin adventure. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Thanks. All audio clips used in this podcast were taken from the 1995 BBC and A&E miniseries adaptation of Pride and Prejudice, starring Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy, Jennifer Ely as Elizabeth Bennet, Crispin Bonham Carter as Mr. Bingley, Christopher Benjamin as Sir William Lucas, Anna Chancellor as Miss Bingley, Alison Stedman as Mrs. Bennett, Anthony Caff as Colonel Fitzwilliam, Barbara Lee Hunt as Lady Catherine de Bourgh, Joanna David as Mrs. Gardner, Tim Walton as Mr. Gardner, Susanna Harker as Jane Bennett, Lynn Fairley as Mrs. Phillips, David Bamber as Mr. Collins, uh, with a script by Andrew Davies, directed by Simon Langton, produced by Sue Bertwistle, and with music by Carl Davis. These clips have been used, we believe, in good faith under the provisions of both U.S. and U.K. copyright law that allow for reproduction of copyrighted material for the purpose of critical analysis. If you would like to contact the makers of this podcast, you can email us at firstimpressionspodcast at gmail.com. In this podcast, I briefly mentioned Arnie Perlstein and his theories about alternative interpretations or shadow stories in Jane Austen's novels. If you want to learn more about his research, you can find his blog at sharpelvessociety.blogspot.com or find him on Twitter at Jane Austen Code.